0: Welcome to another episode of The Forum, the podcast by the Diplomacy Law and Policy Forum. Today, we have with us Ras Nabil, who is a research associate at the Research Society of International Law, and he will be talking to us about the law of neutrality. So, Ras, just to start off with, can you tell us the distinction between what is a belligerent state and a neutral state under the law of armed conflict, and what are their corresponding rights and obligations?
1: Cool. So, a belligerent state, basically, Um, Just to sum up what that means is, is a state involved in conflict. So belligerency is um, the sort of state of being in a conflict and then neutrality, its opposite would be a state that is not involved in a conflict. Um, It may not necessarily be as black and white as that, because um, you may ask, what if a state supports another state that is fighting, that is a belligerent, but does not necessarily get involved itself. Depending on the type of support that they do provide, for example, if they provide military support, they would be classified as a um, as a belligerent themselves. Um, so again, while the demarcation may be you know very black and white in that sense, um, there are quite a lot of gray, gray areas in this in this area of IHL. Um, but again, the rights of neutral states, at least as espoused in the original conventions, so we had the Hague Conventions five and thirteen of 1907. Um, basically the main rights were that the territory of a neutral state were, was inviolable by any belligerent state. So any territory of a neutral state cannot be used for any sort of military advantage by belligerent states. So that would usually involve the invasion of armies or, um, you know, using, um, the territory of a state a neutral state as a shortcut to get to another state. So those things are sort of, um, some of the the rights of neutral states and obligations of belligerent states but again neutral states also do have certain obligations so if they do find combatants of uh, belligerent states on their territory who are wounded for example they have to provide them uh, relief and medical aid Um, they also do have to maintain neutrality in the sense of diplomatic and economic relations Mm -hmm. so they have to uh, maintain trade relations with both belligerent parties or all belligerent parties regardless of who is aggressor or who may be the victim state. So that again, that classification does not necessarily apply uh, for neutral states. They have to, um, in again, to maintain neutrality would be to treat both parties equally. And that would mean regardless of who violated international law, they would still yeah. have to maintain yeah. diplomatic and economic relations. So
0: there's there's kind of a right to inviolability so long as you maintain your duty as a neutral state which is to abstention and impartiality and then the duty of the belligerent with regard to the neutral state is respect for that inviolability Um, and so that's in terms of how the law of neutrality is violated it is if you don't ascribe to these obligations which is that you provide material arms transfers, yeah. aid to one of the belligerent parties, yeah. then you're, you're no longer neutral. neutral. Yeah. Um, and even if you allow for the transport of munitions or the transport of troops through your territory, that's, yeah. that's a violation yes. of uh, your obligations as a neutral state. So in terms of, we know that this doctrine, kind, this law kind of emerged in the 18th and 19th centuries. Yeah. So how has it evolved? Because now states no longer, especially because um the rise of global trade and commerce and globalization is such that you don't really have you you have states which operate their bases on numerous territories you have states which continue to undergo trade even of arms with um parties engaged in um, conflicts how has that evolved now from the concept of neutrality to the concept of non-belligerency
1: yeah i think um with the notion of neutrality, we do have to contextualize it in the just war doctrine. Mm. Um, So if you look at the 18th and 19th centuries, and then even to some extent, the very early 20th century, war was justified. So a state could validly engage in war if for example, there was a dispute over territory, or if if they wanted to claim sovereignty over another land. So colonization again was seen as, in that time it was seen as justified. And so if a state had the right to wage war, other states had equally the right to abstain from war and so neutrality essentially stemmed from that that if a state is uh, you know uh, engaged in hostilities to protect the interests of neutral states you know lives ec- uh, their economy and everything else they would be like okay you know what we're gonna step back you guys go at it you know yeah. we're not gonna get involved but we're gonna treat both of you guys the same but now after um, Article 2.4 of the United Nations Charter, which prohibits the use of force, with two exceptions, um, collective security and self-defense. With the now globally accepted um, prohibition on the use of force, states cannot wage war, and states are not justified when waging war. So then, neutrality in that sense is a default position. All states are essentially, um, they have to sort of maintain a sense of neutrality by by default uh, if the use of force is prohibited. However, what we're seeing nowadays is that even where uh, the law is violated, so where states do use force, so when there are acts of aggression, states are now uh, at least showing support, usually for the victim state or whichever state um, has not violated international law, you see states at least Extended, extending uh, an arm of support in their favor that would usually translate to the provision of aid mm. um, and other such uh, resources. But Arms,
0: etc. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But again, the concept of non-belligerency, like you talked about, is showing that support but not getting directly involved in the conflict itself. Yeah,
0: and and I think that the the movement has really been to towards the notion that this does not. I mean, states haven't come out and said like, "Oh, we've breached our uh, neutral duties." Yeah. What they've said is like, "Oh, but we're still not non—we're still non-belligerent." Yeah. So it's this argument. I think that we're kind of seeing the fruition of some kind of c- custom, which make which may crystallize yeah. or be codified later, in which states are arguing that this doesn't really count as a breach. There's a new norm by which we can, if there's an aggressive state, we can be uh, supporting the victim. And I think we are seeing this a lot in the context of Russia and Ukraine, yeah. where states do not think that they might not be neutrals in that yeah. conflict, but they do, definitely don't see themselves as co-belligerents yeah. with Ukraine or in any way. Sure. Uh, and so again, the notion of non-belligerency, and again, we saw that I think with Italy maintaining bases in the Iraq war, American bases during the uh, second Gulf War between America and Iraq and again Italy said but we're non belligerents we have not engaged in this conflict yeah. um, and I think that it is really interesting to me seeing the values espoused by the law of neutrality because it is this desire to maintain international trade and commerce between countries despite there being an armed conflict taking place between two yeah. or more And um, and you see that so much in the context that It is the obligation is on states to not supply these weapons and to not supply this aid. But even in the 18th, 19th centuries, apparently because of the war profiteers, the private persons were not prohibited. And now that we're seeing such huge rise of corporations and companies and kind of the the business of war. So say, would it be incumbent upon the U.S. to prevent Lockheed Martin from supplying weapons to any other state and i think at that time they they decided no and you still see that okay so that would not violate the law of neutrality and i think for me that was one of the most interesting things that okay it is only on the state but whatever corporations are within the state um or premised on its territory they don't really need to to abide by it, by these principles. And I think going forward, again, you with the, the rise of this concept of non-belligerency, it kind of maintains that, that the value is on international trade and commerce. So yeah. whoever wants to buy our weapons, that's not yeah. us getting involved in the conflict, Absolutely. really. Um, so I think that's, that's quite an interesting development. And again, you mentioned the UN Charter, and there's been so much talk about how under the UN Charter, the prohibition on force of Article 2.4, you have two exceptions, which is self-defense under Article 51 and collective security operations by the Security Council. So how does the Security Council authorization of the use of force impact the law of neutrality?
1: So again, um, the, uh, the Security Council can authorize both measures falling short of the use of force and measures involving the use of force. Again, with measures short of the use of force, we could uh, talk about sanctions. And so the UN can mandate um, that a country that has violated um, Article 2.4 should uh, have sanctions placed on them. And these will include various economic sanctions, trade embargoes, arms embargoes, etc. So by virtue of being part of the UN, you have to abide by that.
0: Um,
1: And so... Now, with that duty upon you, you can't really express your neutrality Mm. because then you would be in violation of your commitment to the United Nations. I don't know if you wanted to add on to that.
0: I I, I mean, I wonder whether this is a bit of an overstated um, exception to the law of neutrality just because I've never seen the UN Security Council. It has authorized member states to use force. Um, but we have seen that you don't have the UN Army, which was originally conceived yeah. under the UN Charter. So the the Security Council does have to rely on member states to do it. But I don't know if I know of a case where the Security Council has forced a member state to use force against another one. Right? It's just authorized it yeah. and anyone can take them up on that as having legal cover. Right. Um, but I think it does come into play when you have... The notion that okay if you have a un special force which is conducting uh which is acting under chapter seven powers and they are required to pass through another state's territory then you would have to allow them to pass through
1: exactly so
0: that that's when i think it it can become a bit more courses so so yeah how does the law of neutrality interact with that so i think that in that case you would have something which kind of trumps it which is the UN Security Council's powers.
1: Yeah, I I do think the the presence of international organizations and uh, uh, just general like non-state or supra-state actors does muddy the waters a bit when it comes to neutrality. Like you said, that is a state allowed to reject UN forces to pass through, regardless of it being a member state or not. Um, But again, similarly, we can also see how uh, in terms of muddying the waters with neutrality, you could also see how the rise of non-international armed conflicts uh, involving non-state armed groups and um, states. How that also sort of um, is a gray area when it Mm. comes to neutrality. The Hague Conventions 5 and 13 were envisioned, or they were at least conceptualized at a time when war would take place between states. So it would be an international armed conflict. But now you have increasingly, or at least the majority of conflicts, uh, one could argue, today are non-international armed conflicts. So they involve non-state armed groups. How does that then um, sort of, uh, how does neutrality then apply there? Because again, technically this um, non-state armed group does not have its own territory per se, but Mm. if it is exercising effective control where the government of the state, uh, the the, the state apparatus has broken down does that apply there? What is the effective control test? How would it look like? Yeah. Um, what if another state decides to get involved on, on part of the state of the state or on part of the non-state armed group? do states have this obligation not to get involved with mm-hmm. non-international armed conflicts or if you know if there is a clearly overwhelming so if there's clearly overwhelming support for the non-state armed group um, against a tyrannical state so um, some would say, does the state then have a moral duty to, to help out, you know, yeah, military intervention?
0: Yeah, and I think some people are very clear cut about this in the sense that they're like, it doesn't apply in non-international armed conflicts. So in non-international armed conflicts, we don't have the law of neutrality. Yeah. You can, you uh, as in Nicaragua concerns will, would play yeah. a part in terms of how much are you intervening, tadish overall control or effective yeah. control test, state responsibility. Um, but I think it does become more complicated when you have these um, internationalized, on international on conflicts. I know some people hate those terms, yeah. spillover, NIACs. Like what happens in those sure. cases? And exactly. uh, especially then, because now we have this parallel, so where you have a IAC occurring and you have a NIAC. So, so how does that occur? And I also think one of the other major... Um, concerns right now about cyber is how it it changes so much about how we apply ihl so in terms of how would we apply ihl to the cyber realm and even when we um one of the things that I was just recently looking at was the concept of cyber espionage because espionage requires that you're on another state's territory yeah. and you're walking around and you're looking for information. How do you do that when it's in the cyber realm yeah. and how do you, how can you have people convicted for espionage under that? So similarly with the law of neutrality, how do you have, um, what is the onus on this neutral state to prevent, its infrastructure its yeah. servers from being used by co-belligerents
1: yeah i think cyber or at least cyberspace does um again throw up a lot of questions about neutrality and whether at least how it's espoused in uh, the two conventions is still relevant or even under um customary law because again the the nature of cyber or like cyber warfare is that it takes place over an intangible sort of realm yeah, yeah, and we're not used to seeing that conflicts in the past have always at least to some extent involved uh, to, to a major extent i would say they have involved territory if not territory then at least some sort of physical realm so if conflicts would take place in outer space at least you would be able to demarcate okay this is you know this is the international space station or this this is a you know a satellite belonging to this state mm. so at least you could be you were able to to tell but yeah. with cyberspace especially when you have uh, globally shared spaces like the internet how do you really yeah. say yeah. whose uh, cyberspace belongs to which state or which which cyberspace belongs to which state um, again with the notion of infrastructure and um, things like servers and telecommunication networks um, I think the Fifth Higue Convention does talk about the fact that uh, a state is not allowed to let a belligerent state use its information uh, communication networks to route certain attacks right, or to yeah. you know to gain any sort of military advantage whether it be through you know announcing an attack or whatever but I think now with cyber the issue is can you attribute a certain attack exactly. to a different state
0: yeah attacks yeah.
1: can also be routed through servers that yeah. are placed on the territory of different states or they may be servers that are you know commonly shared uh, There could be yeah. private service as well owned by private or, uh, corporations and so do you look at where that corporation is registered mm-hmm. as then you know uh, the, the neutrality of that state uh, so i think the main issue is with attribution Yeah. and if you're in neutral state and you are unaware of an attack being routed through your servers are you then held accountable for violating neutrality are you then a co-belligerent is there a degree of uh, is there a burden of proof or a burden of knowledge that you need to prove of whether you had knowledge of the attack being yeah, routed through your exactly. servers or not or like is there a due diligence requirement so, yeah and i so think that, pretty that due diligence
0: requirement of being like uh either you now know about this being used uh your infrastructure your servers computers on your territory are being used to conduct attacks uh, by a co-belligerent, by a belligerent, not a co-belligerent with you, but then it's the onus is on you then to uphold your uh, duties under the law of of neutrality and to stop it. But I think that states will often balk at that notion of the due diligence requirement because it's so difficult to find out. So even if it does come to their awareness or if you have that wider kind of, I'm thinking of international criminal law now in the sense of you should have known, yeah. uh, that is gonna be one which is really, really difficult to, for, to hold states up to essentially. And I think one of the other things to look at in the context of technology is the fact that you have, uh, technology is not one of the prohibitive things in terms of how you can give aid to a belligerent state. And as technology becomes more and more important, it's interesting to see whether states will see technology transfers as meaning that you are either non-belligerent or you're breaching the law of neutrality. So I think going forward, that will also be the cyber realm. And in terms of technology transfers, how does does the law of neutrality evolve to deal with that is going to be one of the things that will be most interesting to watch out for in this regime of law. Thank you so much for joining
1: us, and we hope you tune in for your future episodes. Thank you.